The text that I would like to call your attention to today is Amos 8. Amos 8, verse 1 through chapter 9 and 6. Amos 8, starting at verse 1. Amos 8, starting in verse 1. The prophet Amos writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, The Lord God showed me this, a basket of summer fruit. He asked me, What do you see, Amos? I replied, A basket of summer fruit. The Lord said to me, The end has come. For my people Israel, I will no longer spare them. In that day, the temple songs will become wailing. This is the Lord's declaration. Many dead bodies thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and do away with the poor of the land, asking, when will the new moon be over so we may sell grain, and the Sabbath so that we may market wheat. We can reduce the measure while increasing the price and cheat with dishonest scales. We can buy the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and even sell the shaft. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget all their deeds. Because of this, won't the land quake and all who dwell in it mourn? All of it will rise like the Nile and will surge, then subside like the Nile in Egypt. And in that day, this is the Lord's declara- This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will make the sun to go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. I will turn your feast into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning for an only son and the outcome like a bitter day. Look, the days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord. When I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east seeking the word from the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful young women and the young men also will faint from thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, Dan, or as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. I saw the Lord standing beside an altar, the altar, and he said, strike the capitals of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Knock them down on the heads of all the people. Then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. None of those who flee will get away. None of the fugitives will escape. If they dig down to Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, 
from there I will bring them down. If they hide on top of caramel, from there I will track them down and seize them. If they conceal themselves from my sight on the sea floor, from there I will command a sea serpent to bite them. And if they are driven by their enemies into captivity, from there I will command the sword to kill them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the God of armies, he touches the earth, it melts. And all who dwell in it mourn. All of it rises like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. He builds his upper chambers in the heavens and lays the foundations of his vault on the earth. He summons the water of the seas and pours it out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Father, this is your word. God, it is a hard passage for us to understand, but it is your word. There are things in it that our culture would find harsh, but it is your word. As we see a rebellious people run and rebel and are disobedient and they received a famine of your word. God, we thank you for your word. Help us to understand your word. Help us to apply your word. God, may we lean into those passages which our flesh want to lean away from because it is from you and it is good as we have already read this morning in Psalm 135. You are good. You are great. God, help us to understand your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I remember them being pleasant Sundays. Sarah and I were newlyweds, and we had a many a pleasant Sunday. We would attend different churches around Anchorage. There were some evangelical churches where they had a different flavor. We attended a Methodist church for a while. We never really did commit to one of them, but we had pleasant Sundays. We were usually met by a well-dressed person that would smile. You know, you put your, your, your smiliest, friendliest people on hospitality. They would meet us and give us a, a bulletin or something and, and, and invite us over for a cup of coffee and make sure that we felt welcome. The praise bands had practiced their songs, and we would slide into our rows or pews and, with our coffee cup, and someone would give us an encouraging talk that, as I remember, were never very controversial. And we would leave and have a pleasant lunch. Sometimes we'd go to Nusagayas for, for salad, or sometimes we'd go somewhere else. And then we would go and get a warm mocha and walk around the Anchorage Barnes & Noble. Before finishing the day back in our little apartment, cuddling up to binge watch some show. And they were pleasant Sundays. Now I had to report the next morning for PT and go for a run, and Sarah had to start a new week of teaching knucklehead high schoolers algebra and geometry, and we just wanted to relax on a pleasant Sunday. Never do I remember our lifestyles being confronted. Never were we made to feel awkward or did we get mad. I don't ever remember being challenged in any of those churches. They were very pleasant. And never did we hear from the minor prophets that I can remember. Now, one thing I have learned in my three and a half years of pastoring is that modern Americans don't really like the minor prophets. 
when I first came here, my second book that I ever preached through was Jonah. And that's when I first started hearing complaints. People need to feel encouraged on Sundays, pastor. God is not wrathful. God doesn't have anger. One person said, there's too much talk of blood when we were talking about atonement and how that translates to the New Testament in Christ. Two years ago, we, we went through Malachi. Some of y'all remember, it's about this time of year. We started through Malachi, and again, the same thing. One gentleman said, my wife wants to know when she's going to be encouraged, and she's not very encouraged in this sermon series. Now, it's been a long time since I've received an angry email from a sermon. But just in conversation, sometimes I get the sense that we have an apprehension when we come to books like Amos. We look forward to Advent. We look forward to the Gospels. But we don't like the wrath of God. We'd rather have a pleasant Sunday. Gavin Orland argues that our uncomfortableness with God's wrath is a recent development in the church. He says pre-moderns would have had no issue with God's anger. He says, quote, I'd be hard-pressed to find any major theologian before 1750 who would regard our current objections to divine wrath as anything other than strange, alarming, and highly eccentric, end quote. Friends, we must be careful. We must consider the whole counsel of God. We must not blunt the cutting edge of Scripture, but allow it to do its work. It is theopneustos. It is breathed out by God. It is from Him, and it is for our good. And we need to be genuine in our reading of Scripture and understand God's nature. As I've said before, the Bible is not a salad bar. We don't pick the parts we like and leave the other parts, but we take the whole counsel. And the holiness of God and His righteous justice is what makes His grace all the more sweeter. The fact that we have rebelled against a holy God who has a standard we could never meet makes the grace we have found in Christ saving, amazing grace. So this morning I want to argue as we examine this passage that saving faith is genuine faith. Do you want a pleasant Sunday? Or do you want genuine Christianity? In this passage, we find three warnings against ingenuine Christianity or, or, or false Christianity. We are to beware of false worship. We are to beware of false fronts. And we are to beware of a false sense of security. Remember, Amos is a He's not a professional prophet, he's a fig farmer, he's a shepherd from the southern kingdom in Tekoa, 10 miles south of Jerusalem, and he's called to preach to the northern kingdom as they are divided, and call out their sins. And these are not pagan people, right? They wouldn't call themselves atheists, they wouldn't call themselves Wiccans or, or Buddhists or whatever, they would call themselves the people of God, the sons of Abraham. And yet God has a strong message for them that their hearts are far from him, despite the fact that they have a temple. And the first thing we see here is that saving faith is genuine faith. So we must beware of false worship. Look with me at the first three verses. The Lord God showed me this, a basket of summer fruit 
He asked me, what do you see, Amos? I replied, a basket of summer fruit. The Lord said to me, the end has come for my people, Israel. I will no longer spare them. In that day, the temple songs will become wailing. This is the Lord God's declaration. Many dead bodies thrown everywhere. Silence. Here we see just like the third vision. In the fourth vision, there will be no relenting. This will come to pass. And Israel is portrayed as this bowl of ripe fruit. This signifies a summer harvest, the end of the season. And there's even a little bit of Hebrew wordplay here if you were in the original language because the word for summer fruit sounds a whole lot like the word end. This is the end. The end has come on the people. The time of their disobedience is done. It's over. And we'll see in the next verses in 4 and 5 that the, these businessmen, right, they're impatient with observing those things which God has commanded. They're going through the motions, these feasts, these false worships, so they can get out of, of church service, if you will, and profit from the poor. And God says, it's the end of that. He says, no longer will I hear your songs. It's not that their songs weren't good enough. It's not that they didn't practice. It's not that they didn't show up to Thursday night you know, praise and worship practice. But their hearts are far from God. And He will not accept their sacrifices. Remember, we saw that He will cut the horns of the altar off so that there will be no more atonement for sin in that Old Testament system there in the temple. And He will transform their worship. Their temple songs will become wailing. You should think of like elegant music. Think whatever style of music you like. So the perfect praise team singing the perfect Tomlin songs, or maybe you've got the Cambridge choir singing, you know, perfect tone, four-part harmony, whatever part harmony, whatever it is, it's perfect, it's elegant, and all of a sudden it morphs into shrieks and screams. Think the Handel's Messiah transforming into the screams of the last moments of the Titanic. And that's what God says he'll do to these worship services. Imagine you are there in that pleasant worship service I spoke of, and all of a sudden it becomes utter chaos. The lights are out and screams. That's what we see in God's judgment here. He will not be fooled by shallow worship or fake hearts. The second thing we see is that saving faith is a genuine faith, so beware of putting up a false front, a facade, Look with me at verses 4 and 6. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and do away with the poor of the land, asking, when will the new moon be over so we can sell again? And the Sabbath so that we may market wheat. We can reduce the measure while increasing the price and cheat with dishonest scales. We can buy the poor with silver and, and, and a needy for a pair of sandals and even sell the chaff. The CSB says, reduce the measure while increasing the price. The ESV says, make the uh, FF small and the shekel great. In other words, what we see here is this, this, this measure of weight that they are charging people with. And, and they have a three-pound shekel, but they're marking it as a five-pound so they can charge more. Maybe in our context, you, you hear about the guy who, who you go to the butcher and he, and he charges you for three pounds of meat and a half a pound of thumb. In other words, the butcher keeps his thumb on the scale to up the price a little bit, but he doesn't have as much product going out. 
That's what we see here. The wealthy are trampling on the poor. They are dishonest to their fellow people, not just to pagans, which would be bad, but to God's people. Think church member being dishonest to church member. Friends, are you honest with your dealings? We must ask ourselves, do we practice what we claim to possess, or is it a facade? Is it a front? It is a mask. Do we pretend to be a godly person while all the well, while our heart is far from God? Right now, some of us are saying, I wish I was in that pleasant service. I wish I was on my fourth Tomlin chorus right now. But the Bible demands that we ask ourselves, are we pretending to be living for Christ while we actually live for self? Because you see, swindling people and, and raising our bank account and maybe cheating on our taxes, right? That shows a lack of faith in God. It says, I don't believe God's going to take care of me. It also shows that you don't understand God's holiness because it says, well, he doesn't see what I'm doing. As long as my fellow church members don't see it, well, it isn't seen. Friends, pretending, us pretending to love God of the Bible while actually loving the God of our mind is idolatry because God sees. He does biggest desires, not, not that we're happy here on earth or that we have all the things or that we have a second home or that we have a jacuzzi tub. His goal is that we are holy. And we are to live a life that mirrors the change that we claim to have happened when we met Christ. When we have a life-changing encounter with the one true and God, living God, our lives actually change. One of my favorite illustrations, which I cannot improve upon, and I will say quickly, comes from a man named Paul Washer when he's preaching in a church and he says, you know, if I came in here and I was late and I was dressed perfectly and my hair was done and my clothes were tucked and they were ironed and, I, and they say, why were you late? And I say, because I was changing my tire and I got hit by a Mack truck. You would say, I'm a liar. There's no way I got hit by a Mack truck going 70 miles an hour. Look at you. All of your bones are in place and your, your hair is in place. And he'd say, that's what it looks like, friends, when you say that you've had an encounter with the one true and living God, yet live like the devil. When we meet God, our hearts are changed, our lives are changed, and anything else is fantasy. Third, saving faith is genuine faith, so beware of false security. Look with me at verses 7 through 10. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget all their deeds. Because of this, won't the land quake and those who dwell in it mourn? All of it will rise like the Nile and will surge and then subside like the Nile in Egypt. And in that day, this is the Lord's declaration, this is the declaration of the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning for an only son and its outcome a bitter day. God swears by the pride of Jacob, this will not, this will not stand. He will not forget the wickedness of evil. Israel. Remember, we've already read, they turn justice into poison, and they turn righteousness into bitterness. 
And because of that, God's going to do some changing of his own. They've changed justice into poison and righteousness into bitterness. Well, he will change feasts into mourning, songs into lament, temple songs into wailing, plenty into famine, his presence into seeking for him. He will change day to night and light to dark. Friends, we must beware. They believe they serve God, but we see their worship will be turned to wailing. Then look at 11 through 14. Look, the days are coming. This is a declaration of the Lord when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful young women and the young men also will faint from thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria will say, as your God lives, Dan, or as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. We see here that God is turning his back on his people. It's not a famine of of water or of bread, but of his words. God's word, God's instruction. You remember that Christ tells us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he's taking that word away from them, away from his people. Israel will now have a famine of God's word, and people will stagger from sea to sea. They will be looking. They will be searching for this word. It says that the young men and women will faint, and people will fall. They will seek God's word, but will not find it. They believe themselves secure, right? They're secure on the hill of Samaria. We saw that in in Amos 6. They, they, they think that they're secure because we're descendants of Abraham. We're God's people, but here we see they're going to strain to hear God's word. They're going to be disappointed. They will not find him because he has removed himself from their presence. Finally, look at 1 through 6 of chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals and the pillars so that the threshold shake. Knock them down on the heads of all the people. Then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. None of those who flee will get away. None of the fugitives will escape. If they dig down to Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide on top of Caramel, from there I will track them down and seize them. If they conceal themselves from my sight on the seafloor, from there I will command a sea serpent to bite them. And if they are driven by their enemies into captivity, From there I will command the sword to kill them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the God of armies, he touches the earth, it melts. And all who dwell in it mourn. All of it rises like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. He builds his upper chambers in heaven and lays a foundation of his vault on the earth. He summons the water of the seas and it pours out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. We read this final vision, and we see the presence of the Lord beside the altar in the temple. And from top to bottom, destruction will be comprehensive. Right? The capital of the pillar is the top. And the threshold, you know where the threshold is on a door, it's the bottom. And he says from top to bottom, shake it, cause it to fall down on the heads of all the people. If they escape, they will be struck down with the sword. From heaven to Sheol, the Lord says, I will get them. 
from the top of Mount Carmel to the seafloor. God will track them down, sea serpents, the sword, captivity, whatever it takes. God will have his justice. In other words, Amos is saying from the top of Deer Mountain to the bottom of Beam Canal, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. I am the Lord God. I spoke the world into existence. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. He says, my eyes are on you, Israel, for harm and not for good. His sovereignty extends over to every corner of the universe. His justice will pour out over the earth like syrup over a biscuit or gravy if you're that guy. But it will cover. It is all-encompassing. He is mighty. The Lord is his name. Who are you? Who am I? To sit in judgment of his word or his statutes. Pride and arrogance. If he, if he despairs over the pride of Jacob, he certainly despairs over your pride. And Israel believes himself secure because they are descendants of Abraham. And God says, you will feel my full wrath. And you say that's Old Testament. Well, certainly there are some differences. But did not Jesus say the same thing when he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he says what? Depart from me. I never knew you. Not a few. Not a couple of guys. Many. Friend, it takes more than calling yourself a Christian. It takes more than putting yourself on a church roll. It takes more than a certificate saying you have 50 years of unbroken church attendance to be a true person of God. Friends, you must be born again. Simply just wearing the shirt that says Christian and voting for the right things does not make you one. And as we think about Israel, and as we think about God's holiness and his, his judgment and his wrath and, and the, the failure of God's people in Israel. I have three things that we should learn from them in this passage. Three things. The first one is this. We must beware of dwelling in the parts of Scripture that we like and neglecting those that we don't. Beware of dwelling in the parts of Scripture we like and neglecting the parts that we don't. Remember, God doesn't say, hey, Israel, I'm going to destroy you in the pool halls, in the fields, down on the docks. Where does he say it here in this passage? He's going to strike the temple. Israel called themselves God's people. They were at the temple. They were at church. And that's where God's going to cause the ceiling to fall in on them. Yet they are not following God's instructions. Remember, they're sitting there saying, man... When's church going to get over so I can get out here and go do what I want to do? Whether it's making money or, or, or getting out on the fishing boat, they don't, their heart isn't here. Their heart isn't with God's people. Their heart isn't for worship. Their heart isn't for singing the songs. They're not following God's instruction. It's all God-breathed. So what part of Scriptures do we like to ignore? Do we like to neglect? Do we like to explain away? Charles Spurgeon said, if I come across a scripture that I don't like, I read it and study it and, and read it over and over and over until it's a part of my bloodstream. Why would he say that? Because Charles knew what we know, that it's God's word. And it's his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Isn't the foolishness of God greater than the wisdom of man? 
It's easy for us to look at churches who explain away passages of the Bible to allow female pastors as being unfaithful. It's easy for us to look at people who believe you can affirm the LGBTQ agenda as being misguided. But what about when we neglect God's Word? What about when we neglect the holiness of God? What about when we neglect our call to abandon sin and pursue holiness? What about when we'd rather have a pleasant Sunday because we've got to go to work tomorrow than faithfully apply God's word to our lives? You may not like God's message to his people, but it is his message. Not ours. Not ours to twist. Not ours to manipulate. Second, we must beware of false worship practices. We must beware of false worship practices. In this passage, we find a people who can't wait for worship services to be over so they can get back to what they want to do. They're looking at their phone during the feast. They're looking at their watch during the Sabbath, and they're saying, when is this going to be over? When can I go do what I want to do? I need to make some money. I need to swindle the poor. I need to whatever. For us, maybe it's luxury. For us, maybe it's, it's, it's vacations. It's entertainment. It's watching football. Is that you? Are you the one that doesn't prioritize gathering with God's people for worship? How many times have you checked your watch and phone this morning because you can't wait to get out of here? You don't want to be among God's people. It's, it's really easy for you to skip worship. You say, you know what? My bunions are acting up today. I just, I'm not going to be able to make it. I told you the worst one I heard one time is it's raining today, Pastor. I'm not going to be able to make it. I live in Ketchikan, man. Like, if you can't go to church because it's raining, move to Arizona. Move to South Texas. Move to L.A. I don't know where it rains the least, but move there. Because it's more important for your soul that you hear the word preached, that you gather with his people, that you do not forsake the gathering yourselves together, than it is for you to live here and not go out when it rains. Is anything past one hour on Sunday an unnecessary burden to you? We should take a hard look at Israel. We should look at what they're doing and sincerely evaluate our hearts. Where are our priorities? You know, the shorter catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy being among his people? Do you enjoy studying his word? Do you enjoy singing praise to him? I did not ask, does God entertain you? I did not ask, is the pastor's sermons like TED Talks, or does it fit the way I like, or does he use enough movie things, or am I entertained? I asked, do you desire God? Because the thing is, is if you desire something, you get to it. You don't care. It doesn't matter. You'll sit in the freezing cold and watch the Chiefs play football or whatever team, if you desire it. There was an, uh, a meme that came out this week, and it says, 12 reasons Christians do not attend sporting events. 12 reasons that Christians do not attend sporting events. And that's a little bit cheeky. It was edgy. I almost posted it. It was like, I don't know. Someone will get mad at me. But two of them were this. The games are on my day off, and I like to sleep in and run errands on the days that football games play. How many people have you said that, heard say that? And would you call them a true fan? 
How about this one? I read a book on sports, and I know more than most of the coaches anyways. Right? Maybe I will post it today. For friends on Facebook, you can see it, because the rest of them are just as ridiculous. Like, I saw the referee make a bad call one time, so I can never go back. The people that sat in the row with me at the arena weren't nice to me, so I'm never going to another football game again. They didn't speak to me or ask me questions about myself. And when you take church out and put football in, it seems ridiculous. But when you read it in church, you've probably heard all 12 of them. Friends, we are called to have genuine worship, to genuinely desire God, to genuinely desire to serve Him. And if you don't, a begrudging one hour a week is not going to do anything for you because your heart is far from Him. Three, we must remember that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Israel was dishonest with their dealings. This passage reminds us that dishonesty, dishonesty does not merely imply grand larceny, right? Like it's not just bank robbers. It's not just murderers. It's people who turn a three to a five on a scale. That's how serious God takes it. They just turned a three to a five, a little extra padding there. You are called to deal honestly in all your dealings, even in the three to five shekel dealings. Christians don't look for loopholes to give them advantage. Christians don't fudge the numbers on their taxes. Christians don't lie to get financial gain, even if everyone does it. You know, when I was in the army, there's a form we fill out. Every soldier fills it out when they travel. And what it is is a reimbursement for, you know, any expenses you have. And it's not like everyone goes and does it or you can choose not to. Like our command would send the forms down and we'd sit in chairs and everyone would fill it out and then everyone would pass it down and then they were collected up and then you were given money for your travel. So if the whole unit went somewhere for a little while, you'd end up doing these forms. And one of the blocks on there is for laundry. And everyone was allowed a certain number of dollars a day. I don't remember what it was. It was something like $7 or $14, whatever it was. And everyone maxed it out. They always said, I did, let's say seven for argument's sake, I did $7 worth of laundry every day. And after I became a Christian, I couldn't do that. And so I didn't. And my form got bumped back down. It came back down. I got called into S1, and they were like, hey, your form's wrong. And I was like, what's wrong with it? And they're like, your laundry, you didn't max it out. And I was like, I didn't even do laundry on this trip. And so everybody gets the full amount. You've got to fill it out that way. I said, but they didn't do laundry. That's lying. It's dishonesty. It doesn't matter if everyone's doing it. It's not free money. Someone's paying for it. We are called to faithfulness and just in our dealings. The gods of, uh, guys of God are everywhere. He sees our dishonesty. If he can reach us at the highest mountain and the lowest depths of the sea, he sees what we're doing too. There's no escaping him. You may pull one over on your brother, and you may sneer at me right now in your heart as a Dudley do-right, but the Bible says that God's eyes are everywhere, and they see your heart, they see my heart, even right now as we sit here. Friends, saving faith is a genuine faith, and it leads to a Christian life that honors the Lord. Saving faith is a genuine faith, a faith that sees God as he has revealed himself in his word that takes the good parts, actually it's all good part, takes the hard parts and the easy parts. 
A faith that sees God as he has revealed himself. A faith that craves to enjoy God and to glorify God. A faith that pursues holiness. Williams Perkins lived in the times of the Puritans, and he was a drunk. He was a drunk. He was known in the town as being a drunk. And the story goes that one day he's staggering through town in the middle of the day, and he hears a woman out the window berating her child and said, if you don't behave, I'm going to hand you over to drunken Perkins. And God used that moment to shock him. And he put the bottle down and went to church and became a believer, and he ended up writing all of these works which were influential on Puritan movement. You see, he didn't say, I'm going to go down to that church and affirm Jesus, and I'm going to keep doing what I do. There was a change in his life. To be born again is to be born again. We say that so much that we forget the weight of it. It's a new man. It's a new woman. It's a change of heart. It's not the same thing we always done. So friends, I ask you this. I don't want to guilt anyone. I know some of you have struggled with this sermon. Not, well, maybe the sermon, but this series. And I don't want people to feel guilted, but I, and I'm not going to ask you to pray a prayer, but I'm going to simply ask you this. Please examine your heart. Examine your actions. When you are given a chance, do you give yourself financial gain or pleasure or whatever at expense, at the expense of what the Bible teaches? Or do you honor God? When you face a hard passage of the Bible, do you embrace it like Spurgeon was talking about? Do you read it over and over to understand it? Do you say humbly, God, I know this is your word and I just want to understand it and this is hard, but it's from you so it's good, so help me? Or do you explain it away? Do you try and worship God as he wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, in genuine and sincerity? Or is this a box you check? Do you strive to obey God's commands? Remember, Jesus said, people will know you're a mine because you love one another, but he also says, people will know you're a mine because you obey my commands. And then he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? And then he says, many will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So do you strive to obey God's commands? Do you love God and his people? Genuinely. Not do you like these three people, so yes, I love God's people, these three out of all 47, but do you love all 47, even the knuckleheads, especially that knucklehead named Alan McElroy? Do you prioritize gathering with his people for worship, or is your schedule defined by the world? Or is your schedule defined by God's people? Is your service to God or to self? Yes, you can harden your heart. You can ignore this passage. You can explain it away as an Old Testament passage. I would argue we can draw a line straight to the New Testament for the same concepts. You can ignore it, you can harden your heart, or we can learn from Israel's disobedience. And we can learn about the holiness of God. And we can learn about his righteous wrath and why Christ's sacrifice is so sweet. We can look at God's 
holiness and his righteous wrath. And then when we look at the cross, instead of just saying, oh, thank you, we see that our Savior bore all of that wrath. He took it all on himself. It's not just three normal nails, but he bore the wrath of God on my account for my sin, for that thing that I like to do and excuse. We can learn from Israel, and we can turn to God, or we can reject it, but friends, this saving faith is a genuine faith. Holy God, merciful and mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, you see all, you see into my heart now. God, there is nothing out of your sight. There is no power greater than you. There is no wisdom that you do not know. And God, you are a God of love. You are a God who sacrifices his only son on our behalf. You bestowed on us such a great salvation that it cost your very son's life. Father, help us. Help us to see the gravity of that and to live lives that honor you. God, may we, as Paul has commanded in the New Testament, walk worthy of our great calling. Not for our glory, not to pay for our sin, not to earn our salvation, God, but walk worthy because of what you have done for us. And it's in his holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.